Kubitschek is to sing the second chorus there for you. I have an unbelievably great set of lyrics for the second chorus, which I learned in the signal chorus. Oh, boy, gee. And if, uh, if you're over 21 and can guarantee that you're a genuine art student, I'd be glad to send you an illustrated copy of these lyrics. Just great for just knocking them right on their... Running a duff at the next party you go to. No, I'm forever da da dee dee. La la dee dee. Would you, uh, before we get started here, I have, uh, I uh, have a little, uh, just a little uh, ritual I'd like to obey here, please. Uh, would you please? Uh, before we get started, uh, I'd like to clear the sinuses. Bring it on there. No, no, that, uh, that's it. Now bring it up. Oh, I did. Hello, Dr. Jen. Hello, Central. Give me Dr. Jazz. Uh, or a, uh, yeah, I guess you'd call it an artist. It's hard to say what an artist is, really. 
that an artist really in a in a general sense is a person or a, a yes a person I guess you'd have to call an artist generally is a person who reflects and translates his time into a viable form now what is a viable form well uh, a novel that you can carry around you can't carry around people's lives but you can carry around a novel which translates and codifies and compresses the time and uh, it uh, it's a, 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 an honorable function it can also be highly controversial it can also be very frustrating uh, because uh, quite often the populace doesn't want to have his time translated <laughs> I mean we're living in the in the days of advancing boobery on all fronts. Oh, yes, the boob is in the saddle, and he is running full tilt. And incidentally, I'd like to point out that the boob is often the one that proclaims himself to be anti-boob. Listen carefully <laughs> to what we are saying, uh, which reminds me, this is W.O.R. New York, speaking of knavery, I mean boobery, but uh, the, the whole problem of... <laughs> Of, of of advancing Claudism, which uh, has been you know the back in the in the uh, early sixties I came up with a phrase that's now in in uh, most uh, in most dictionaries and it was actually used by a president in uh, one of his uh, in one of his uh, actual uh, press meetings uh, I, I I came up with this phrase when I was on a show here late at night how many of you remember the phrase creeping Meatballism. Well, that phrase was used that was gained great currency, and is in the American, the dictionary of American slang and usage now. And I'm delighted to say, you know, there it is. But uh, creeping meatballism was a thing I defined in those days as the creeping belief in mediocrity as a positive virtue. Now I had co I'd come up with that even before uh, Tiny Tim had had uh, arced across the horizon in a fizzling arc. Uh, I, had, I came up with that even before Bette Midler had made her giant uh, uh, bid for total mediocrity in a dynamic, echo-chambered sense. And so uh, this, uh, I think, is, is coming now to total fruition. In other words, uh, you, can't, you couldn't say anything like that today, the creeping meatballism is a is a big problem today because it's so much part of our life that, after all, how can a meatball complain about creeping meatballism? <laughs> In other words, subtly we've all been turned into a curious kind of meatball. Now, I've, I've felt for a long time, you know, that the, the people who think that the invasion of the barbarians, which is what happened supposedly at the time of the fall of Rome, would be... Uh, would be in our time not quite as clean cut in other words the barbarians don't come riding into town on gigantic uh, war steeds wearing uh, leather buskins and with enormous beards floating behind them that the invasion of the barbarians would happen when we ourselves slowly turn into barbarians and uh, in short we invaded ourselves which uh, uh, and none of us are immune. So don't think because your fantastic education has set you apart and above and beyond that, 
that though it's not not so that we're all part of the time, the uh, zeitgeist, the the total oov, and uh, we are all either you have your choice, either you're a meatball or you're the gravy, <laughs> and they're inseparable. What is a meatball without gravy, and what is gravy without meatballs? So uh, in the end, creeping meatballism has sort of taken over the whole of our time, Western world, really, in a sense. And don't think for a minute that it's, it's, it's stopped there. Did you find creeping meatballism in many parts of the rest of the world galloping? In fact, they invented it, uh, the, the meatballism that came out of certain parts of the Middle East, and, and the East, too, for that matter, uh, is legend. <laughs> I mean, truly legend. So uh, here we're sitting here now, and uh, to, to uh, counteract uh, the... Uh, the, uh, I suppose you might say, the fictionalization of our world, and uh, give you an idea that there's uh, that in some ways the truth of a thing can be unbelievably more interesting than uh, than the let's say your average uh, fictional account of the truth. Now you've heard this many times. People say, well, you know, truth is stranger than fiction. You hear this all the time, but nobody really believes it because they figure, you know, if I go down see this new big show down there. At, uh, at the Warner Brothers uh, Cinema 8 or whatever the hell it is you're going to see, that, that that's far more exciting and far more intriguing than anything you can be involved in. No way. It's just to see what the artist does, the guy that takes this, puts this film off for you. He just takes a slice of something, adds a few little corny touches to it, and then shoots it on the back lot. And uh, let's take the idea of an earthquake. Now, did you ever see the movie Earthquake? That's nothing compared to a real earthquake. Did you see the Towering Inferno? Well, did you notice that hardly anybody sweat in the Towering Inferno? Well, the point, <laughs> the thing is that in a real Towering Inferno, it's far more exciting than in the mo movie version of the Towering Inferno. For one thing, there's a hell of a lot more smoke. Did you notice they didn't seem to get more, much smoke in the places where they were? No, because you wouldn't have even seen Paul Newman most of the time. I mean, <laughs> it was just a lot of flames, but the, it was a very strange bunch of flames. They didn't make any smoke, and it's the smoke that kills people in these big fires. Not the flames, it's the smoke, as any good fireman will tell you. But the, that's too messy, and also doesn't photograph well. I mean, there's a big cloud of smoke, a lot of people running around. That doesn't photograph very well. It's, uh, so the fictional account of, uh, of a fire is always less intriguing than, and in fact, uh, less exciting and, and less lethal than the real thing. Now, I'd like to suggest that this not only happens in, uh, in big uh, so-called uh, blockbuster movies, but what if I, what if I started out with a, with a television drama? that showed this lady sitting in her kitchen. And let's say she's played by, uh, let's uh, take somebody who's playing everything these days on television, Ann Mara. She's playing everything, right? So uh, here's Ann and her husband, Harry Gardino. He's the universal husband on all television shows, right? So uh, here they are, they're sitting in their kitchen, and um, they're discussing their problem. Now, you want to hear what their problem is? That's, that's, after all, the essence of drama. I mean, it's the, it's the conflict. I mean, if Hamlet had not had all that trouble with his uncle, forget it. There'd been no play, would there? So he was made by the trouble that was in his life. 
he would have been uh, just this little short, fat, mad-looking Danish prince uh, and lost the history. Look at King Tut. I mean, there were a lot of other pharaohs. Do you know how many pharaohs there were in, in, the, in the entire uh, dynastic progression in ancient Egypt? How many pharaohs there actually were? 362. <laughs> well, now, wait a minute. It covered thousands of years. Uh, that was just a, lot of, a lot of pharaohs. And uh, it was a lot of years. Do you know how many years ancient Egypt covered? Or do most of us think it just was this one shot with... Uh, with um, with Yul Brenner, with a bullwhip, and these guys building the pyramids. That was it. That was called ancient Egypt. But actually, that covered roughly, let's see now, uh, the time covered by what we call ancient Egypt was a good 2,500 years, give or take a couple of hundred years. I mean, you know, we can throw them around. But uh, it was about 2,500 years, give or take. It was, a, it was a, uh, ancient Egypt as we know ancient Egypt began around 4,000 B.C., roughly. That's what they call the, the ancient kingdom, the early, the early ancient Egyptians. And then it moved into the middle kingdom and then moved into the late or the new kingdom, which was not new by our standards since that was about 2,000 years ago. But uh, they covered a lot of ground. All right, uh, so take King Tut now. You all heard about King Tut. A very minor pharaoh, by the way. Oh, yes. King Tut was out only uh, uh, in the uh, pharaoh game for roughly uh, around four years and uh, was only a, a minor pharaoh in the, in the ultimate uh, uh, description of history. Now, how old was King Tut? Oh, you figure he was very official. No, as a matter of fact, King Tut, when he was found... Uh, when uh, apparently he died between his 18th and his 20th year. That's roughly the, how old he was when he when he left this mortal coil. Now, uh, King Tut was was actually the pharaoh for around uh, two years or three before that. And he didn't do much during his time. He just pharaohed, that's about it. But he didn't, he didn't, uh, he didn't, no, he didn't cause any great, any great hoopla during his time. But why is he important? Why does everybody talk about King Tut? Well, because <laughs> he's the only pharaoh uh, whose tomb was found intact. That all the other pharaohs throughout the thousands of years, their tombs had been uh, robbed and had been desecrated and one thing or another, because after all, this covered thousands of years. And a guy walking around raising his sheep... Uh, and kicks a stone off the one side, and there's 4,000 bars of gold. He's going to pick it up. And that's what, what really happened. And his, his uh, tomb was one of the very, in fact, the only pharaohic tomb. Uh, there were others discovered in fairly decent shape, but his was the only discovered that had never been opened from the time he had been buried. Uh, and he'd been buried 3,000 years before they discovered him. Now, uh, that was one of the great archaeological finds. And by the way, there are still some mysteries surrounding King Tut. I mean, they, they don't know why certain things were done. Uh, even Egyptologists uh, are disagreeing. For example, when uh, King Tut was found, he was, uh, he was in a state of fairly decent preservation. He was nicely wrapped. And uh, yes, he had, it was a very nice job. And uh, he had, for example, around every finger, if you're interested, his fingers were separate, and each finger 
was wrapped in a sheath of gold, like gold foil. And uh, gold was quite plentiful in those days, uh, although it was uh, considered very rare. It was still plentiful by our standards. And so, among other things that they found, he was still wearing, and this is what made him an interesting find, he was wearing the uh, royal diadem, which is a, a thing that goes around the head. You've seen pictures of, uh, of uh, Egyptians, uh, you know, with the thing with the snake like on, on the forehead. Well, this royal diadem was uh, was worn at burial. It was it was a thing that was to send. It was sort of like a like an omen, really a very important uh, like like say the Christian cross in a sense. Uh, not that's a very loose thing, but it would be say like he, it was his pass into the land of Osiris. Uh, Osiris being heaven, uh, that is heaven for. A, a pharaoh, which incidentally was the, the only place he could go since he was also considered part god, you see. So <laughs> he was wearing this diadem when they found him. He was also, among other things, wearing bracelets and so forth, some of which had been worn in life, others had been worn only during his burial for specific ritualistic reasons. But there was one curious thing they found on him. He, he, he was wrapped in different layers, you see, of this. You've seen those linen wrappings on the on the uh, mummies, and his, his arms were crossed. You always see this in the movies, but they actually were. His, uh, his left arm was crossed across his breast, uh, just, and, and it was, his hand was on his right ribs. You picture it, Mara? And his right arm was crossed, but his right hand was resting on his uh, left hip, Okay, now you got the scene. Now, he was covered with various layers of, of uh, cloth. This was a kind of linen that they made there, impregnated uh, with various uh, rosins, uh, various uh, types of chemicals, all of which, incidentally, have been, uh, most of which have been uh, um, analyzed by chemists and so on. But a lot of them, they haven't been able to really determine what exactly was this curious substance used in many ways. Uh, a lot of the stuff was uh, undefinable. But uh, here he was, you see, uh, surrounded by all of the various uh, gifts and things that accompany a pharaoh as he goes off into uh, the great beyond. And he was, he was uh, when, when, the, when the cave, or rather the, the tomb was open, there were a large number of people who had come there, you see, because these guys had discovered it. Who were the two men who had discovered this tomb? You don't know this. Does this, does this bore you, this discussion? Because, you know, as a kid, I, I wonder if I was alone in this. As a kid, I was taken to, a, uh, to you know how when you're, you're in second or third grade, the teacher takes you to the museum? Well, I was growing up, of course, in the south side of Chicago. And the museum that we were taken to was uh, what great museum in Chicago? It's one of the great museums of the world. Right. Field Museum. Tremendous museum. There's also the Museum of Chicago, the Chicago Museum of, of Art and Industry, which is another museum, but science and industry, rather. But this, uh, the Field Museum was fantastic. And they had, they had down below, uh, in the, the under sort of like in the basement of the Field Museum as you came in. They had these, these, I mean, really spectacular exhibits. They, uh, it, it so happens that that particular museum has one of the great Egyptian collections in the world. And among other things they had down there, they had an actual 
reproduction of of King Tut's tomb as it was found. And you could go into it. You know, you went through the passageway and all this, and it was lit, and and uh, they had absolutely reproduced it in absolute detail, including the fact that they had inside of it an authentic sarcophagus into which the coffin, you know, that, that uh, strange coffin-like thing that the mummies wear that's carved in the shape of a person, you know, with the mask on it and all. Uh, that's what the casket is put in. It's a big stone-carved uh, case, really, the sarcophagus, covered with a heavy, uh, a heavy slab of carved marble. And uh, here was this whole thing. Well, at the age of about, what are you when you're in third grade, ten maybe, I remember going through that. I was really knocked out. And from that time, any time anybody mentioned mummies to me, I, you know, my ears went up, man. I tell you, there's a whole idea of, of the mummy was really exciting. And some of the great, really rotten, uh, ultimately, I suppose you'd have to say that, but some of the really exciting horror and or slash sci-fi films I've ever seen were about mummies. <laughs> you know, the mummies curse and the curse of the pharaohs and all that stuff. Well, well, as we went, uh, you know, the kids went through there, I really got turned on by these mummies. And they, were, they had several of them all laid out there with lights and these fantastic... And they had one that was partially unwrapped so you could see what, what that was really like. Well, King Tut was... See, the, the common people... I don't know why I'm telling you all this, but I got into this Egypt thing, and I, I read up all everything I could get on it. But, see, the, the common people were not even buried in the same places that the, that the royalty were buried in, obviously. They didn't have what we would have called today cemeteries. Uh, there was a, a royal place for burial called the, really the Valley of the Kings. There were several other places, but they were royal places. Uh, it was believed that uh, that uh, the god uh, that there were many gods, but uh, one of the gods there that they believe Aton, for example, A T O N, which you see occasionally in crossword puzzles. By the way, Aton was only a god for a short time. Uh, brought in by a pharaoh, very interesting pharaoh, who created his own god. And uh, there was Re or Ra. Uh, there were many, many different gods. But this area was considered to be uh, one, of the, one of the places where these gods, uh, in a sense, were their domicile. It's a mystical quality. It would be like uh, sacred ground, really. Now, the common people of the time of Egypt were largely buried in mass graves, incidentally. They, they, were, they were not put into mummies like we think of the mummy. The mummy was a royal prerogative. And uh, although a man of great wealth or great importance who was not uh, either a priest or a pharaoh could uh, be mummified and put into a very elegant uh, tomb, but uh, incidentally the priests were the repository of all knowledge in Egypt. Uh, they they were the ones that did the writing. So if you were a common person in Egypt, you couldn't read Egyptian writing. You've seen this writing. That was a heavily guarded secret <laughs> among the the priests and the the hierarchy of the time. And uh, they had some rather advanced medical knowledge. I got into this thing. See, so I, I read all I could read about. There's a great account by the man who was one of the co-finders of this uh, tomb of King Tut of the opening. In fact, it's a three-volume work. It's a classic work, uh, almost minutely detailed, like bit by bit as they opened this tomb and all the various things, what it was meant, what it meant, and so on. But as they, as they 
they, they actually tapped away, and there was a little part of the wall came down like that, like the dirt and the, and the, the stones, and they shone this light in there. They, shone, they, they shined a light inside, and they could see vast stores of gold, and they couldn't believe their eyes. Here was the, a really un, untouched tomb. Been laying there for 3,000 years. Well, King Tut had, among other things, that's a curious thing, he had a thing that looked like what would be today a carpenter's T-square. You imagine a T thing? It was made of gold, and it was lying on his chest, but the the uh, the uh, top part, or the top part of the T, was lying across the left side of his chest, and the bottom half of the T, which was long, was like a yard long, roughly a yard, or maybe a little shorter than that, ran down his left leg, and it was wrapped in one of the uh, layers of the wrapping and, and the uh, mummification process. And no, nobody knows to this day. There's a lot of theories among ar- archaeologists as to what this specific thing meant, but they've never found another one like that. Now, what did he die of? You curious? No. He died of what looked like uh, a uh, brain hemorrhage brought on by a some kind of a uh, an injury to the left side of his head. Now, there's a lot of theories about that. <laughs> his wife, by the way, they, they, among other things they found, they found a, a small bouquet of uh, flowers which had been put in the sarcophagus, obviously by his wife, as they were about to bury him. His wife, by the way, was around 15 at the time. And uh, they, they, they still found the, the flowers and various things around in there that had been placed there 3,000 years before. Some of the plants are unidentified to this day, that there's no parallel modern counterpart of the plants. Uh, but uh, here was King Tut lying. That's why King Tut is famous. Uh, he's not famous as a, as, a, as a pharaoh. He is famous, though, for the fact that his tomb was found. The one thing that they they were that are still argued about among archaeologists is why the succeeding pharaoh who by the way was a very ambitious evil type in some ways and who attempted to erase all the signs around of his predecessors did you know that a lot of the desecration of the graves was made by pharaohs themselves who didn't want other pharaohic graves around to detract from their glory it would be as if a guy became president and then tried to erase all signs of any previous president. He didn't want any any sign that anyone had ever been president. And uh, this is what they did. They would go out, and, and this particular guy, no one knows why, though, he left that particular grave of his successor, or his predecessor, rather, still intact. You know what the theory is? The theory is that, uh, that they were afraid of the so-called curse of King Tut. Now there is a, there's a lot of theories about this <laughs> this curse. That there that one of the beliefs, of course, one of the uh, one of the theories uh, extant is that the the priests actually did put in in these tombs uh, what we would consider rare bacteria today of, of lethal diseases, uh, so that when when uh, uh, when the tomb was open, you would you would breathe in this air of these bacteria and forget it. The game is over. There are a lot of uh, theories about it, but uh, this, this I remember going through the uh, the Egyptian section of uh, the Field Museum when I was about ten, 
and absolutely being knocked out by that whole Egyptian thing. And I suspect that practically every kid that's listening to me right now is saying, yeah, yeah. You know, mummies, Egypt, curses, all this stuff really gets a kid. You gradually forget that stuff, see, and then you start worrying about the curse of the boss. Is what they call you. Mr. Grubbage is cursed that he laid on the sales department. <laughs> Other mundane problems. But uh, I'll never forget, as far as I'm concerned, one of my great... Uh, one of my great thrills uh, came one day when I flew into Cairo Airport just after dawn. And we flew in at a low altitude coming in towards the airport, and we flew over the Great Pyramid of Giza and the Great Pyramid of Karnak. These are legendary names. And here they are, these fantastic things sitting out there in that, that endless desert with the sun reflecting off of us. What a wild sight. And uh, there's, there's still a lot of uh, unanswered questions and theories and various uh, ideas that put on. You know, during the time of the Egyptians, in the rest of the world that was known at the time, the Egyptians were already legendary as being, first of all, the most advanced civilization that the world had ever known right then. And uh, so when Mark Antony came into Egypt, he was coming to the home office rather than the other way around. <laughs> Yes. Cleopatra was part of that scene, you know. Wow. You come to the right place for culture, buddy. Uh, 